you. Please have a seat. So, I was in two minds what to do this morning, because it's the, it's the first one back, and uh, I kind of said, are we in a, I don't know what we're doing, are we in a series, what are we doing? And people say, oh, just, just, just you can do anything, you can do anything. Um, and they say, I think we'd like to know what you've been doing while you're away. So, um, so that's what we're going to have this morning. Um, some reflections from my sabbatical. It's not a fully orbed you know, here's three months' worth of study, and I'm going to condense it into a short, sharp message for you this morning. It's more of a bit of, okay, this is what I was doing, this is what I learned, this is some of the stuff that I'm uh, processing. And I'm sure over coming weeks and months, more of this stuff will kind of seep out into Sunday, uh, Sunday mornings. Um, first thing I want to say is um, thank you to everybody who kind of looked after things while I was away. Tim's not here this morning, he's taking uh, a Sunday off, but thank you to Tim and to the wardens, to Claire, our administrator. I met with our archdeacon, who's my boss really, on uh, Monday, and uh, she said, I haven't heard anything about St. Giles while you're away, and that's a good thing, that's a good thing. So thank you to everybody who held the ropes and uh, looked after things um, for us. Okay, so, what's a sabbatical? Well, in the Church of England, one of the um, things that's in place for the well-being of clergy, and I think for the well-being of churches as well, is that when you've been in parish ministry for 10 years, um, you're offered the opportunity to go on a sabbatical, which is a three-month break from parish ministry. So, three months uh, to step aside from the day-to-day responsibilities of looking after um, a church. Um, It's not a three-month holiday, although you are expected to relax and recuperate. You can't just uh, spend three months watching daytime television. Um, The idea is that it's an opportunity for some personal study, a chance to travel a bit, a chance to learn a few new things, and a time of refreshment and renewal. The main um, element, I, I think, of a sabbatical is that it's a chance to reflect upon life and ministry and reconnect with God. Um, I've been married for 20 years, and there are times in marriage when things are going really well, and there are times in marriage when things uh, can be a little bit difficult. And one of the things that can happen over time in a marriage is that your relationship can all be about uh, the things that you do together or the things that you're responsible for. So, children, money, the house, jobs, work. And things can get kind of very routine. And you can lose that spark of why you actually got together in the first place, what attracted you to each other in the first place, that romance that was at the heart of your relationship in the first place. That's why kind of weekends away and romantic breaks and holidays are so important. They give you time to reconnect as a couple and not just as kind of caregivers or look after others. And it's a bit the same with a sabbatical. As a, as a vicar, you feel very much responsible for a church. And one of the things that can happen is that you can find that your prayer life and your thought and your energy and all of that stuff is all going into uh, the church. And actually, your relationship with God can start to kind of wither and suffer. And so uh, one of the ideas of sabbatical is it's a chance to reconnect with God without having that extra responsibility of thinking about what God is maybe uh, doing in your church. So I had three months. 
And there are three kind of elements to those um, three months. At the start of my three months, I had a retreat, uh, basically a stay in a monastery. Uh, that monastery is called Buckfast Abbey in Devon. So I had uh, a week down in Devon, staying with the monks down there. They're a Benedictine order of uh, monks. Then I kind of had a month of a half of study at home. I did a bit of traveling. I interviewed some different people. I visited other churches. I did some reading. I did a bit of study. And then at the end of my three months, I had a a 10-day retreat in Missouri, a place called uh, Assumption Abbey. And then we had a a family holiday at the end. Uh, We went to Portugal uh, when all the fires were happening and um, it was record temperatures. So that's why I'm brown. It's not that I've been on the beach for three months. It's we went to the, the hottest place in Europe uh, for our holidays. So I want to think about those three um, different elements. So this was, this was the location of my first um, retreat, right at the beginning of my sabbatical. Uh, my last Sunday here was the AGM, which was the end of April. That was a Sunday, and then on the Monday, um, I travelled to um, Buckfast Abbey, and that's a photo um, of the abbey. Um, It's a monastery that was founded in 1018. It fell into ruins in the dissolution of the monasteries. It was empty until 1907, and then a group of monks moved back in. Uh, They rebuilt it, got it back on a a kind of level footing, and it's been a, a, a monastery ever since. That whole, that's the church, and then at the right-hand side, uh, there's the monastery, and then there's huge gardens as well. All of that place, um, there are six monks who live in it, so they've got a lot of space for guests, uh, and they're all elderly, so uh, the youngest, I think, was kind of 65, 66, so it was an interesting um, experience being there. And on reflection, I think I went there too soon. I think, I think I needed a bit of a break between kind of the AGM and then going on a retreat. Because I found myself uh, there for a week trying really hard to relax and be spiritual. And it was that feeling, you know that feeling when you go on holiday and you need those first few days just to kind of unwind? It felt like that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, time. I remember once um, I was sitting, they've got beautiful gardens, and I was, I was sitting in the, in the gardens. I was on my own, and I was trying to be really spiritual. And it was completely silent. There was just the birds chirping. The sun, uh, sun was shining. And I was praying. I was like, oh, this, this silence is just great. This is amazing. You don't get silence like this in Bridgeford. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's really good. It's only been 30 seconds since I looked at my watch last time. Um, so, so that retreat, I found honest, that retreat was um, a bit of a struggle. One of the, um, one of the things about monasteries is they, uh, they welcome guests. Different monasteries welcome guests to a greater or lesser extent. This, this monastery does um, welcome guests. And um, there was another guest who was there who is an American guy, a uh, Californian guy. And uh, he was, uh, this, this, the first week wasn't great, if I'm honest. So he was a bit annoying. And uh, he was one of those people who, uh, whenever there's a kind of quiet moment, they want to come and talk to you. And I didn't want to talk to anybody uh, during that week. So he, he would, I, I would find myself trying to avoid him while he would want to come and uh, talk to me. But in the end... Um, I thought, well, I better be Christian, and I will, I will talk to him. 
And so pretty much on my, more or less my last, the day before my last day there, uh, we actually sat and we had a, a conversation. And he told me his life story, which was basically um, his life had been wreckage all of his life to the point that he had uh, two years previously uh, given up his job and travelled the world trying to find the meaning of life. And he travelled through India, Southeast Asia, Australia, America. He travelled he all around. And he had stayed in different holy places, all the different places, countries he'd been in. So he stayed in uh, Buddhist temples, he stayed in um, Indian uh, ashrams, and now he was staying in a Christian monastery. And his, his two years were coming to an end. And I said, and how do you feel about that? How it's been? How's it been? And he said, I, I haven't found it. I haven't found it. I haven't found God. I haven't found the thing that I'm looking for. And I said, have you thought about Jesus Christ? And he said, what do you mean? And so we had a brilliant conversation about who uh, Jesus was. I was able to... Um, uh, there was a little bookshop there. I was able to go and buy uh, a, a book, simple introductory book to the Christian faith, who Jesus is. Uh, gave it to him. I saw him on the last day, um, just as he was leaving. He said, thank you for that book. I, I stayed up all night. I was reading that book. It, it was incredible. Maybe, maybe this is what I'm looking for. So I kind of think maybe that first week, maybe that wasn't for me. Um, maybe that was him, for him. Um, reflecting on that week, I was drawn to this psalm. It's Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. Has that image there, that picture of somebody seeking for God, searching for God, and God being close to them. And as I, as I think about the person I met in the monastery, that's who I think of. And our world has many people who are searching and seeking. And I think I can often forget that as a vicar. I think we can forget that um, as a church too. But there are people who are searching for the reality that is only found in Jesus Christ. Um, the next... Um, sort of phase in my three months, I did some study. And my study was on a topic called um, church revitalization, which is an area of of theology that's just kind of uh, developing, really. One thing somebody said to me that really struck me um, in my time um, away from St. Giles was he said, the church is dying. Um, And he was a bishop. It wasn't our bishop, but he he was a bishop. And he said, the church is dying. And we can be kind of um, a bit insulated from that at St. Giles because we've got a thriving church. We've got all ages represented here. We've got the very youngest right up to the very um, oldest. We've got young people, lots of them. I think we've got 40 or so away on a trip um, this weekend. Um, You know, good numbers on a Sunday. Um, We can be insulated from that truth. And I think it is a truth that the church in our country and the church in the West, of of all denominations, of of all flavours, is dying. Some figures um, for you. Between 2008 and 2013, um, 
2,071 churches closed in the UK. And uh, just over 1,000 were started. And of those 1,000 that were started, um, about a third will, will close within four years. Um, the Church of England has been undergoing a, a period of decline for a number of years, decline in numbers, and it's declining at a rate of about 1% uh, per year. As I say, we have lots of uh, children here at this church, but about half of Church of England churches have less than five under-16s with them on a Sunday. And so those are, that's a picture there of some uh, dry bones. And the challenge for church leaders of whatever church they're, uh, they're a leader of is what, what do we do about this? How do we respond to this? How can we revitalize and renew and uh, restore and help churches to grow? And so that's what I did for my, my study, my kind of month and a half um, in the middle. And there, as I say, there are a number of insights that, that were to be found there. To be honest, none of it is rocket science. It's all the kind of things um, that you would expect. Um, and as I say, I'm sure over the next coming months, some of this will filter out. I'm not going to go through it all uh, this morning. But I think there were four, um, four kind of key uh, insights that I, I kind of found um, through my study. The first was this, the importance of leadership. In any organization... Uh, the role of the leaders is really important. Those who are responsible for the life of the organization is uh, what it does, how it functions, the well-being of the people uh, who are part of it. So one thing that comes through in all the literature, all the, all the surveys, all the reading, is the importance of leadership. And also what came through is that we need a different model of leadership, particularly in church life. Many of us have have kind of grown up with a model of uh, a leader, in whatever organisation it might be, as what's known as the hero leader, Um, the all-competent person at the top who's responsible for everything, who has all the ideas, who provides all the energy, and who keeps things uh, running really, really well. There's need for a different model of leadership, and particularly a different model of leadership in churches. And when leaders fail and when leaders fall, things go uh, terribly, terribly wrong. Those of you who've been following what's been happening um, in the States, in Pennsylvania, in the Catholic Church, um, in Chicago, in uh, Willow Creek, uh, that church, very well-known church, uh, you'll know the dangers that happen when leaders fall and when leaders uh, get it wrong. In my second uh, retreat, uh, I read a book in a monastery by Henry Nuon. And he talks about Christ, uh, the king, being a leader. And I want to read uh, from that this morning. This is something that sort of uh, stuck with me uh, while I was away. He writes this. I started to see and feel that Christ became our king by obedience and humility. His crown is a crown of thorns. His throne is a cross. The soldiers knelt before him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head with it. While he hung on the cross, they said, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. We are asked to be obedient to him who is obedient to death on the cross. 
We are asked to renounce our will for him who prayed to his father, let your will be done. We are challenged to suffer humiliation for him who was humiliated for our sake. Christ became king by emptying himself and becoming like us. Let me at least realize today that if I'm ever asked to accept or exercise authority over others, it should be an authority based on a sharing in their suffering, those whom I, those whom I ask to obey. Different model of leadership. Second um, kind of insight I think I, I picked up was this centrality of a ministry of word and spirit. In the Old Testament, there's um, a chapter in uh, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. It's a picture where the prophet has a vision of a valley of dry bones. And those bones are completely uh, exposed on the side of the, uh, the, the, the hillside. Uh, they're completely dry. They're completely dead. And God says to him, uh, speak to these bones. And he speaks to them and he says, hear the word of the Lord. And the bones start to come to life. And then God says to the bones, I will put my spirit within you. I'll put my breath within you. And later in that chapter, uh, God says to the prophet, this is my people Israel. They once were completely, utterly dead, but they're brought to life. And they're brought to life by a combination of the word of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord. Um, Third thing I think I picked up was about the need to attend to church health. There's lots of books written about um, growing churches. And there's lots of concern and anxiety about, as I said, declining numbers. But actually, I think the thing that needs to be looked at is the health of churches. What makes a church healthy? And what makes a church unhealthy? And how can we help churches which are unhealthy to become healthy? Maybe they've become inward-looking. Maybe there's an issue in the leadership of the church. Maybe the relationships within the church have have gone sour and they've not been uh, addressed. Maybe there are churches that have lost all kind of connection or contact uh, with their community. How can we help those churches uh, to become healthy? And the last thing I kind of, um, that took me by surprise, but actually I really enjoyed uh, finding out about, was how to help churches to die, which seems like a really odd thing to, um, to, to be looking at on your sabbatical. Um, but anybody who's in, in parish ministry or anybody who's been part of church life um, for any amount of time will know that there's a kind of, there's a, there's a dual uh, path that you are on. You proclaim the the healing of Christ. You proclaim that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And when people are sick, you gather together and you pray for them, you anoint with them with oil, you lay hands um, on them, and you pray for their healing. By God's grace, we've seen people restored to health in, in this church through the prayers of others. But at the same time, you realize that there's, there's also the truth that all of us at some time will die. Every member of every church will die until the Lord uh, comes again. 
And again, part of the ministry of, of, of being a, a minister of, of a church is to help people to prepare for that, to get their affairs in order, to make sure their relationships are, are, are settled and right, to reflect on uh, the, the life of eternity that is to come, to give them hope and, and encouragement and to help them make that transition from this world uh, to the next world, which is better and more glorious. And that, too, is part of the, the ministry of uh, being a leader in a church. What I realize is one of the things that happens in, in churches is that when churches do get to that stage where they're no longer viable, and actually what needs to happen is they need to die, that's something that churches find really, really difficult. And the temptation is to, to hang on even longer, to try even harder, to fight the doors closing for as long as we possibly um, can. Actually, that's not a good thing, and that's not a, a healthy thing. And so I looked at some situations where churches have closed, and they've closed really well, and it was, it was really encouraging. Uh, just one story this morning, there was a church, uh, a different denomination, and they got to the stage where they're no longer viable, they needed to close, and it was, it was obvious the writing was on the wall. Uh, but they were desperately trying to fundraise more money to keep things going, to, to find speakers who could come and speak to their dwindling uh, congregation. And in the end, somebody said to them, look, guys, the thing that you need to do is you need to close, but let's close in a, in a really good way. Um, so what they did, they made the decision that they would close. They set a date for the sort of six months' time. They invited all the uh, previous uh, ministers who'd been at that church to come back. They invited all the former members to come back. They had a great celebration where they had worship and they thanked God for everything that had happened in, in the church, for those who'd come to faith, for those who'd been married there, for those who'd been baptized there. They thanked all the previous ministers for their, uh, their ministry there. Uh, then the, the sort of uh, 10 or so people who were still the kind of active members uh, they all joined another church nearby, and they stayed together as a home group. So nobody was kind of left behind, but they, uh, they stayed as a home group. Uh, then they sold their building, and they took all of the money from the selling of the building, and they gave it to a new church, another church that was starting up in their denomination in another part of town. And they had a, a, a new church planter who was beginning that church, and at his commissioning service for the new work that was starting, uh, they gave him a check for the money that had been raised from selling their church. And they promised that they as a home group in this second church uh, would pray for him and encourage him in his work as a church planter. And that church has gone on to grow and to thrive and to be established. And we miss this in, uh, so often in the Christian life, but it's so true. Uh, the Christian pattern is death and resurrection. Death and then new life. It's not hanging on in forever, keeping the show on the road. I don't know what that means for St. Giles. I, I, I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean that we're going to close and sell the building. It's not, I don't think it means that. But perhaps there is a truth for us here at St. Giles that there are times when we just keep things running on and running on, when we probably need, maybe need to let them stop. And let something new take its place, whatever that might be. So those are the four things that I kind of, uh, I was thinking about. And then at the end of my um, three months, I went to this place, 
which is uh, Assumption Abbey in uh, Missouri in America. I've got family in America, so it was an opportunity to go and visit family and then go to this abbey. And this abbey is somewhere I've been wanting to go to uh, for quite a while. Um, it's a Trappist monastery. And um, Trappists are, a, are a, a, an order of monks in the Catholic Church who are like the really serious, um, hardcore, no-messing-about monks, really. Um, they're called Trappists because their order came out of La Trappe, which is a, a village in um, France, um, not sure when, several hundred years ago. And um, they are known for being quite austere. And the two things that they're most famous for is they take a vow of silence, so they don't talk, and also they're really committed to manual labor. So they don't look after churches, they don't lead retreats, they don't do anything like that. Typically, they will farm, or the, the monastery I went to, they're bakers, so they, they make cakes, and that's the thing that they do. That's how they raise uh, their income. Some Trappist monasteries, they brew beer, um, different things that they do. Uh, but that's what, they're, that's what they're known for, a rigorous lifestyle, uh, silence, and manual uh, labor. And I thought, okay, I want to do this properly, so I'm, I'm going to go to a Trappist uh, monastery. Um, hadn't quite realized where it was. On the map, it looked like not that far away from where uh, my family is, but actually it was five hours' drive, which I thought was going to be about an hour and a half. So it was a lot further um, uh, than I thought it was going to be. And it's in the middle of the Ozarks, which is a forested area in um, the central states of America. Um, if you've seen the, the film uh, Three Billboards Outside um, Ebbing, have you seen that film? Okay, it's that kind of place. Okay? The monastery has uh, 3,000 acres of grounds, which is just uh, woodland, forest, and they're 25 miles away from the nearest town. Um, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no cell phone signal. There was a phone at the Abbey, but you weren't allowed to use it. <laughs> and uh, my brother-in-law dropped me off and as we drove up, it's the most unattractive build. You can't really tell from the photo, but it's basically a breeze block and concrete built. And um, we, we met the person, who's the, the monk who's kind of looking after us. He showed me around. He said, okay, this is your cell. And uh, he opened the door. And it was a tiny little room, and it had a chair and a bed in it and an air conditioning unit, and that was it. And uh, my brother-in-law said, you know, you can come back with me if you like. You don't have to, you don't have to stay here. Um, but I did stay. Uh, and it was a fantastic time. In contrast to the, the first uh, retreat, this was a fantastic time. So I was, I was there for a week. There was nothing really to do apart from walk the, walk the grounds, 3,000 acres. There's plenty of space to, to walk. There was lots of wildlife. Uh, there were black bears. There were deer. There were groundhogs. There was coyote. Uh, armadillos, um, tortoises. Did you know there's tortoises in America? Who knew? Imagine walking through Sherwood Forest and suddenly a tortoise uh, is there in the middle of the path. It was really, um, really, really strange. However, I did have another companion. I don't know what it is about me, but I seem to attract uh, people in monasteries. So there was, um, there was Simon, who followed me everywhere, and um, I couldn't escape from him. And in the end, I just had to accept the fact that whatever walk I went on, wherever I went, uh, Simon would come with me, and I took a photo. This is me and Simon. Um, so Simon was the guard dog of the monastery. 
and he's a gorgeous um, Anatolian um, sheepdog. And when I found out there was bears and mountain lions around, I was quite good, quite glad to have his company. Um, the monks keep a really strict um, uh, schedule of the day, and this is, this is their uh, program, really. Get up at 3.15 and meet in the chapel for prayer in the middle of the night. 6.30 a.m., they had Holy Communion. 9 o'clock, they had morning prayer together. Then they would work. 11.45, mid-morning prayer and then dinner. 2 p.m., they would have prayer. 5.45, they had evening prayer. And then 7.45, they had compliment. That was their kind of uh, pattern of the day. You think about them is they're, ve- they're vegetarian as well. I said they're, these are the serious guys. And uh, they, they hardly talk. They don't do it now, but years ago... 20 years ago, they, they would learn, learn sign language. They would just communicate by sign language so they didn't need to talk um, to one another. And I kind of thought, okay, for the time I'm here, I'm going to try and stick to this pattern as well. So had my cell, had my meals with the monks, joined them uh, for worship. The two bits of worship I didn't join them for was uh, the 6.30 Holy Communion and uh, the 2 p.m. proud. typically go out for a walk in the afternoon and the communion, because it was a Catholic mass, that was just for the, the monks themselves. But the rest of it, I did go to, including the 3.15 a.m. Uh, prayer service every night, which was a challenge, um, but it actually became the, the most special time of my stay there. A bell would go at 3 a.m. Uh, you'd get up, the monks would all get up in their rooms, uh, they wouldn't, wouldn't put any lights on in the monastery. You had a little torch in your room, and you'd use your little torch to find your way to the chapel, and then there'd be a very simple service um, in the chapel. Again, in darkness, apart from just having your torch, just so you could see the words um, in your service book. And at first, it was really hard. Find it really hard getting up at that time. Pretty soon figured out you need to go to bed a bit earlier if you're going to get up at 3 a.m., <clears throat> but then it became really special. There was a real sense of you and God being the only people awake in the world. Now, you know that's not true. You know there's people all around the world. It's 24-hour day, all of that kind of thing. But in the middle of the kind of forest, in the middle of nowhere, at night, it really did feel like there was just you and God were the only people uh, awake in the world. There was a different flavor to the silence. And there was an incredible sense of God being present. What did I learn through my time at Assumption Abbey? Um, Well, I learned... (laughs) Vegetarian diet, uh, complete silence cut off from the outside world, getting up at three o'clock in the morning. Okay, I'm not, I'm not a monk. But I did learn the value of having that rhythm to your day. And it became something that actually was uh, really quite precious. That sense of there is a rhythm to the day that you don't have to decide to pray or to decide to read your Bible or decide to go to serve. It's just part of the rhythm um, of the day. Um, there's a, um, 
a documentary on a program the other night. Um, Michael Mosley, do people watch him? The kind of doctor who's into how to keep fit and stay healthy, that kind of, uh, that kind of stuff. Looking out at you, I can tell not many of you watch those programs. He did this program. He did this really interesting experiment about, about exercise and about motivation to, do, to, get, to get fit and to, to exercise. What he did, he got a group of volunteers, two groups, and he got them to do a fitness test, uh, leaning uh, against a wall. And then after that test, half of the group would have a series of um, interviews, and the other half would just go and do something else. And the half of the group who had the interviews, the little 10-minute interview, uh, would be in a room that has some nice warm cookies, just giving off a nice warm cookie smell. Um, and he would just say to them, uh, those are for a meeting later, you, 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 they're not, you can't eat those, just, you know, just leave them there. So they'd fill in their forms, they'd do their interview, and then they would, then they would be done. And then they would do the same test that they'd done earlier on, the same fitness tests where they, they lean against a wall. <clears throat> and the other group, they wouldn't have had an interview, they wouldn't have smelled any cookies. And what they discovered was that the people who'd um, been exposed to the smell of cookies failed terribly in the second fitness test. Whereas the people who hadn't had that uh, experience, they did just as well as they'd done earlier. And the observation, the conclusion from that, is that willpower is a finite resource that we have. And we use it up throughout the day. And so because you're exercising willpower, so I'm not going to have one of those cookies... When it comes to lifting weights or doing something else later, you haven't got enough willpower left to use. And so if you're purely relying on willpower to go to the gym, I'll do it because it's good for me, I'll do it because I know I need to do it, you're much more likely to fail. And in fact, you're much more likely to drop off in terms of going to the gym. Whereas people who make going to the gym part of their routine, part of their rhythm, I go to the gym on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday at 6 o'clock, and that's what I do. Those people are much more likely um, to stick with it. The monks have a rhythm of prayer and worship that's a non-negotiable. Their day is built around it. It's not I'll pray when I feel like it. It's not I'll pray when I've got time for it. It's not I'll pray and read my Bible when I feel the need to. It's just part of my rhythm. It's just what we do. That's what we do together. Now, I couldn't live according to their rhythm. I certainly couldn't live according to their rhythm at home with a wife and children and a a job and everything. But it did make me realize I'm not good on rhythms. I'm not good on patterns. I'm not good on discipline. I like spontaneity and things being different. I like doing things when I feel like it. But the downside is that the important things so often get squeezed out. And so for me, one of the things I took away was... I need to learn a new rhythm. I need to learn a new pattern of life, particularly for my spiritual life, my Bible study and my my prayer life. I need to find a new rhythm um, that works for me. Okay, so where does this all um, kind of end up? Um, Comes to here for me. Ecclesia Semper Reformanda. Um, that was one of the rallying cries of the Reformation, which the Church of England was uh, a part of. The church reformed, always reforming. The church reformed, always reforming.
Throughout my study, did lots of reading, talked to lots of different people, and all the time I was looking for, okay, what is the heart of this? What is the heart of a healthy church? What is the heart of a healthy church like St. Giles in a suburban place, the heart of a healthy church in a village, the heart of a healthy church in the inner city? What is the thing that we can take from this? And I came time and time again to these verses, the verses we had read at the start of the service. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That, for me, is the heart of church revitalization. It's the heart of what it means to be a healthy church. It's applicable for St. Giles. It's applicable for any church. It's applicable for us in our our Christian lives. To be at that place, to have that experience of Jesus Christ, that we consider everything else a loss. That we go, I could lose everything, but if I gain Christ, I end up up at the end of the day. That was Paul's experience writing from a prison where everything had literally been uh, taken away from him. And if you have a church where this is their lived experience, where the church members, uh, not particularly the leaders, but but church members say, I count everything else as a loss compared to the all-surpassing worth and greatness of knowing Jesus. Then you'll have a healthy church. Then you'll have a church that by God's grace uh, will grow. And you can have everything else, Great programs and strategies and resources and uh, techniques. But if you don't have this, if you don't have this, you don't have anything. Whatever were gains for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Do you think about your experience of Christ, of knowing Christ, as being something of surpassing worth. Is that your experience? And if it's not, how can that become your experience? And how can we as a church encourage each other uh, to find that and become that in our experience? Howard Marshall, New Testament scholar, writes this. The language of knowing Christ is admittedly rare in Paul, but it sums up his understanding of the central relationship in the life of the believer. Whatever else we do, what other relationships we have, whatever else we're about as a church, the core thing, the central thing, has to be that we are about knowing Christ and developing in our, and growing in our knowledge of him and helping others uh, to find him too. Let's pray, and then Hannah's going to lead us in our final song.
Lord, we're all in uh, different places, at different places, at different stages in our lives and different stages in our Christian journey. Some of us are on holiday, some of us are going on holiday, some of us uh, might not get a holiday. Lord, I pray that wherever we are and uh, whoever we are, whatever stage we're at, you would draw us back to yourself. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that honors the Lord Jesus, your son, that grows in its knowledge of him and encourages others to find him because of the all-surpassing worth of knowing him. In his name we pray. Amen. Hannah's going to lead us. We're going to stand and sing. As we sing, we'll take up our collection. <laughs>